Hello and welcome to another episode of my Doing Things Better and Doing Better Things podcast. This is a series where we look at who out there is um, changing the way they do things or what they do in order to kind of make the world a better place or change the status quo in some way. Um, We've had a number of makers on so far and I dare say we're going to have a number of uh, makers on again. Today slightly different. We're talking to Michelle Morgan from Liberty and um, Liberty is a youth marketing agency. And Michelle is one of those people that kind of defied all the odds, you know, didn't do so well at school by her own admission, um, changed the way she thought about the world, said yes a lot, and then ended up being frighteningly successful, all of which is um, astonishing. Her, her story is, is, is great. She's now at a point where stuff's changing once more. And um, and she'll tell that tale in a second. But there's a lesson here. Um, there's a couple of lessons here. Uh, many of my podcasts to date have been about people who make things, who make products. Um, actually, the way that we look at the world now has changed. And the kind of products that we have aren't necessarily physical. So I grew up in a time when you had the means of production in your shed, and it generally involved metal, wood, a hammer, wool, or some kind of building material or product material. Now, our means of production are on our phone. We've all got the ability to make a new product in the morning, set the website up in the afternoon, and start selling it in the evening. We've democratized creativity in so many ways. There's never been a more exciting time for us to to, to change what we do and, and make a difference using the tools that we all have in that little magic black puddle in our hands and for all the negatives of, of that bit of technology. And believe me, there are many. Um, the positives are huge. And so I wanted to focus on not, not necessarily a digital product this time, but a digital service and a service that aligns the truth with youth a little more effectively than it has done in the past. So hopefully you'll really enjoy this um, this podcast. Um, I really enjoyed recording it. So thank you to Michelle. And um, yeah, have a good one. So I'm sat here in the House of St Barnabas with Michelle, who amongst many other amazing things started and ran an organisation called Liberty. Yeah. Introduce yourself, Michelle. Hello. This is amazing. Uh, what a beautiful way to spend a Friday morning. Uh, so I'm Michelle Morgan and yeah, I started Liberty uh, nearly 17 years ago. So in May 2001. It's amazing. That's a long time, 17 years. It's a long time. My daughter's just turned 23 and it made me feel slightly vaguely sick actually. Yeah, my daughter's 13. So, Do you feel vaguely sick about that as well? Vaguely, and but also just incredibly proud and, and excited. Brilliant. Um, yeah. So tell me, tell me what Liberty... No, tell me why you felt the need to start Liberty. Yeah. So I, having failed school pretty horrendously and failed college pretty horrendously. When you I say failed, what do you mean? Well, I didn't really pass very many exams. I was not academic in any way. And and I was having a, a slightly troubled 
moment in time around the time of I think I was the last year of what what they used to be called O levels. Yes. Um and and I just didn't do very well. I think I passed English and drama and religious studies uh, and nothing else. And so I I wasn't able to go on and do A levels and I didn't want to do retakes and I started doing a drama course um which theoretically should have been absolutely joyful but I was I was in a bit of a state and I was a bit confused and so I didn't go I used to bunk off and tr- instead of travel one way on the central line towards Epping I used to travel into town and uh, up to Camden and hang out in Camden uh yeah. too much um and so I got chucked out of college and did a typing course and then had a load of wilderness years where I just was trying to find out who, who I was in the world and, and what it was that I was good at. And I found my way into marketing, into youth marketing uh, in Hong Kong in that kind of weird way that when you're in a different country, you can kind of blag your way into a job or a career or an industry in a slightly easier way than you can when you're being the real you in your country of origin, I think, or maybe that's just me. And it's not just you, and I'm really interested to stop you there because there's two or three things you've said that fascinate me already. So number one, what is success at school? You know, we yeah. measure it we measure it in exams, but the most successfully happy people I know and the ones that pass the most exams, that, that Venn diagram has got a really small overlap. Mm. So that's interesting. Mm. Number two and, and having worked in youth marketing, I'm really interested in your view yeah. generally on education. Yeah. Yeah. Number two, oh, I fucking love what you just said about when you're in somewhere else, Hong Kong or New York or Philadelphia, <laughs> wherever it is, you, you cannot be the person that you feel, I'm putting words into your mouth now, you feel trapped by. You, you, you're not being the real you, you're being somebody else. Totally. It's that, it's that thought that, that we talk about often in leadership of acting as if. Yeah, but isn't that? But isn't that? Wasn't that the real you? Which one was the real you? Good question. But in Hong Kong, I suddenly had had this opportunity to act as if, you know, maybe act as the person that I truly wanted to be or knew that I could be, and I wasn't like you say, I wasn't constrained and trapped by this sense of huge failure because I didn't pass my exams. But that's like, that's like the tiniest blemish on our life is exams. And to and to and f- to think that the die is cast at that point, and that's how you then perceive yourself. I mean, you were, you got through it, and you're incredibly successful. What about all those that didn't? How how do we begin to help those young adults that sat there, failed in whatever? I'm doing inverted mm. commas for the for the microphone. They don't all have the opportunity to go to Hong Kong and do that. And I I mean, I think what what gives me hope at this moment in time is the number of young people that we see coming through being beautifully um, entrepreneurial and the kind of DIY culture of setting up a business or having a side hustle. Actually, that's something that has really become quite huge over the last few years. Uh, So I... In some, yeah, in some ways, I, I kind of feel more hopeful for young people yeah. right now and, and, and in the future that not everything and everyone will be defined by what exams they did or didn't pass. 
I think there's still a long way to go. It's a huge mountain, but I do see glimmers of hope. Whereas I feel like I kind of had to navigate that very much alone. Yeah, I think you're probably right. It was a different time. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, it, just it was as a you good. Were, just as you were getting really successful. Yeah, it was. It was, a, it was a good interruption. So I got some good experience in a marketing agency in Hong Kong. Came back to London. Was able to, with that experience and portfolio of work, come into an agency, into a youth agency where I worked my way up over five years and worked on all of their youth accounts. And the chance meeting with um, someone that I had been doing some work with, a fabulous chap called Sam Conniff, and a meeting of minds, and this incredibly interesting conversation that Sam and I had over two hours of, of drinking coffee was this was 2001 and we were talking about the power of brands and the power of the, the power that brands had to engage with with and reach young people and we were both really good at playing our part in that essentially we were good at flogging fizzy drinks and expensive trainers and mobile phones to young people but we were both asking ourselves and of the world is there more to life than flogging stuff that maybe kids don't hugely want um, and then we kind of started to explore this notion of could you have a I'm now doing inverted commas <laughs> for the mic <laughs> could you have a socially responsible youth marketing agency could you take the power of brands and their marketing budgets and create solutions that still delivered brand benefit and, be- and business benefit to that brand but that also and always delivered some kind of measurable benefit to young people, to that target audience. So we're not saying just do a CSR campaign because that's a nice thing to do. We're saying that let's actually let's, let's root this in business fundamentals. Let's make it business critical. And don't forget, this was in 2001. This is CSV about 15 years before somebody thought before Michael Porter thought of the word. Yeah, and this, this is Naomi, you know, when Naomi Campbell's yeah. No Logo was coming yeah. out. It was when the spotlight had been put on Nike for the, their supply chain for the first time. And we all went, <laughs> ooh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Um, or, you know, we were working with Sony PlayStation and the first rumblings of, ooh, what's the impact on real play and our kids versus the screens and devices and so just those rumblings were happening um, and you know that was the experiment can you have a socially responsible youth marketing agency and we gave ourselves a few months to meet up in the evenings and the weekends to see if we actually liked each other because this conversation had happened the first time we met but I went home that night and had a large glass of wine and said to my sister, I think I met this guy today and I think I should start a business with him. And and then we put a little bit of our own money together and got a, 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 a small loan from the bank. And we gave ourselves six months to, to live to see if this experiment would work. And 17 years later, yes, it's still going. It's still going. I love that. Yeah. I, I remember and, that and we get, Yeah, it's kind of harder, faster rules that we live by do, now. Do you abide by the same purpose and sense of why that you had then? To benefit the lives of young people. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, that part of the mission and the purpose is probably stronger and clearer and more well-protected than ever. And is that has success allowed that to be 
more sacrosanct, more protected. What I'm trying to say, in the tough times, maybe there weren't any, but if there were, <laughs> were you drawn to do stuff that didn't align with that purpose? Yes, good question. In the early days, we did compromise on our purpose, uh, but we would make to ourselves a very compelling case that, you know, let's, let's do this uh, inflatable cushion job for a brand because it means that we can pay the overheads and pay the salaries next month mm. and keep going. And that, therefore, is in service to our mission. And, and I think that, that was the right thing to do. But as, as we grew and as time went on, I think we realised that that was a compromise and it was probably a compromise we didn't feel hugely comfortable with, even though it did keep the business going. And that there is a strength in being really true to your purpose and, and good things can come of that, both in terms of furthering your purpose, but actually also commercially as well. You really stay true to who you are and why you are and what you are and how you do things. There has to be a, there's a commercial benefit that that can can come through at some point. Yeah, but it's hard. And and it is like cooking an aubergine. You you cook you slice it, you put it in the pan, you pour oil into it, and it keeps sucking the oil in, and it keeps mm. sucking the oil, in. and you think, how much oil am I going to have to put yeah. into this? And then at some point, the oil starts coming back out again, and and at some point, the seeds that you planted and all those long nights and the little compromises come to fruition then you don't need to do the long nights as much and you don't need to make the compromises as often yeah and I think it's interesting I think you know many companies and and particularly in the world that that we live in are purpose-driven and yet I think every single one of those that I know has taken work that they don't necessarily believe in Mm -hmm. in order to be able to be here in a year's time yeah and 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 you know to i've done that and to my mind that's fine you've got to do what you've got to do you've got to do it to, to be there to, to do yeah. the great work and also i then will do a project for free for somebody I've, it's a bit offsetty but I, I i just have to, to do that yeah well i what we i used to describe liberty and the experiment and the ambition as as having purpose and profit in equal balance. But what I have learned over the years is it's very rare that they're in equal balance. If your profit's out, your numbers tell you. And if your purpose is out, your people tell you. So what I say now is, actually, the ambition is to always place equal importance on purpose and profit so that you're giving them the same amount of attention and importance and tendering to them do they, both grow, do they both grow together if you do that? Ideally, I'm not sure they do, but I, th- I think it's a it's a wiser approach. So tell me about um, that's it's beautiful. Thank you. Tell me about the um, the challenges of growing a business like like that that sits outside of the norm, outside of maybe some clients' understanding. Or, or does it? And then also the challenges of growing a partnership. Mm. How's that worked through? <clears throat> well, gosh, there have been so many challenges over 17 years and so many kind of moments of potential doom just around the corner and, and then moments of amazingness where the business is flying and, you, you know, you get that real sense of growth. Um, you know, and... 
we've been learning on the job. I mean, literally learning on, on all levels of the job. You know, I, I set Liberty up having been an account director and, and account directors are brilliant and incredibly talented, but don't have the widest possible business experience. So that there was a lot of learning on the job, which you know I'm grateful for, and that was my journey and my choice. Um, why I'm excited in life at the moment, on, on the eve of setting up a new thing, is at this point, at this age, with all my experiences, how can I fast track all of that <laughs> now? Because yeah. I w- I'm not sure I'd want to go through the pain of learning every single bit of how to run and grow grow a business. Um, so before we move on to the new bit, yeah. give me the top three things that you're proud of with Liberty and the top three lessons that you learned. Top three things that I'm proud of, every single young person's story, and I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I can't even keep a track of it. No one in Liberty could individually keep a track of every single young person's story over 17 years, and there are still young people kind of on the periphery of my life who I see doing such amazing things who came in in those first two years who I'm incredibly proud of in, in so many ways. So all of the young people's stories, I'm proud of, I'm proud of creating a business that has contributed to the economy um, and I've created hundreds of jobs over the years um, and found and nurtured and housed for a while or for a long while and sometimes a short while, loads and loads of brilliant people. And I feel really proud of all of those people that have come through Liberty. And I am, I'm, proud, I'm proud of the model, purpose and profit, and how we have challenged and challenged and challenged and persevered, even though it you know, caused me to be quite worn out at times. Um, I'm proud that I see lots of copycat models or inspired by models or, you know, models that just have naturally um, stepped into the space more and more. And it's such a a burgeoning space to be in, whether that's, you see, marketing agencies in our kind of core sector space taking on a, a much more purposeful approach or that sector of that wide sector of purpose-led businesses, whether it's B Corps or social enterprises yeah. or purpose-led, and, and you know, let's not get into the debate about what those definitions are yeah. and what the what the best ones are. But essentially, you know, it's about doing good business and being good in the world. Right? The fact that we've got a choice mm-hmm. is great, and I remember those era that era because it was just that was just after I left Asda and you said that. And um, the whole time at Asda was actually all around um, nearly being sacked for trying to do um, sustainable products, for trying to put solar panels on roofs, for trying to get local produce in store. Like the things that actually is now normal, <clears throat> they were really exceptional. And before and that, you had to fight for that. I had to fight um, for it, and, and, I, and I lost. Give evidence of, and I, and I lost and because, you lost. Yeah. because people I, weren't ready. They weren't, and it was either kill me or leave. And crackers. I, and I spent the previous six years working with small businesses doing that. That was easier. That was way mm. easier. So um, where now? Oh, where are you now? So at about 16 and a half years in, so about this time last year, actually, 
it's been a really big year. I um, had led on a social investment deal for Liberty to help grow the business, but also grow our social impact over the next few years. And, um, and lots of different things were happening this time last year, both for me physically and, and just kind of general stress of running a business and on top of that doing a deal and on top of that kind of settling into new dynamics and relationships um, in what was and it still is really tough times for business tough times for business huge times of uncertainty for business you know two general elections a referendum in a model like ours is brutal mm. it, it had been a brutal couple of years and um, the long and the short of it is I totally and utterly violently burnt out last December physically and mentally and and you know, literally had to stop because I couldn't couldn't carry on and and needed to rest and needed to create space but also had a really horrifying moment where I realised it wasn't just about the physical and mental burnout I realised that my passion and purpose for liberty felt like it had utterly burnt out as well which was really shocking for me because I've made the perfect business and the perfect role for myself, you know, with such pride, but I was utterly worn out by it. And, you know, even had moments of thinking, if I never went back into that office ever again, that's okay. I, I think that's relatively normal, by the way. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying that, that these things are, um, we should take them in our stride. Mm. But 17 years, mm. Steering something that was like it's an icebreaker. There wasn't anybody, there hadn't been a ship that had gone before you. Like everything was a fight. Mm. And that must be exhausting. And that's just the work bit. Mm. There's the life bit as well. Yeah. And I and I and I don't think I don't think that it, it feels to me more common than we admit. Well, that's what I'm finding out there. And I've, I've had burnouts, well, one, yeah. uh, and I don't know anybody who hasn't. There you yeah. go. It's yeah. like cannabis. I don't yeah. know anybody who hasn't. Yeah. Um, and, um, and we can now talk about it. Um, it felt like and for a long time. That's what I'm we finding could. as well. Is that it's amazing when you start talking about it. Um, so I, I burnt out and then had the realisation that the passion and the purpose had burnt out as well. And that sent me into the extreme anxiety followed by a huge slump into depression and I spent a lot of time in my pyjamas and I spent a lot of time kind of feeling terrified and feeling hollow and sometimes my emotions would be incredibly present and sometimes they would just be there would be nothing and I'd curl up in the fetal position um and it was reading Ruby Wax's book Frazzled it's a great book. It's amazing. And with and I kind of was reading it mostly for the mindfulness story and evidence that she put together in this book. She was describing her fall back into depression while she was writing the book. And I had tears streaming down my eyes as I thought, hold on a sec, what she's describing is how I feel, but she's calling it depression. Hmm. Fuck. <laughs> I just thought I was having a bit of low energy, man. <laughs> um, which I now realise I've had some low energy 
a, a few, a handful of times in my life, but I've never labelled it as or identified it or have anyone tell me this is depression or this is anxiety. Um, but it was that moment of realisation that got me to my GP and triggered a number of things that, that I put around myself to help me start a to help me first of all surrender to it there was an amazing moment of just oh okay I can actually I can kind of I can settle into this now it's got a name that's fascinating and I'm going to accept it um I didn't settle into it for that long but I put a lot of things around me um and and one of those things was giving myself permission to play with the idea, if I did it all over again, what would I do? Yeah. Because I had decided that I was going to invest in me, and I was going to invest in me and my husband, Remy, an artist, and I certainly wasn't going to go and get a job. Who wants one of them? <laughs> I mean, I'm completely unemployable. I haven't had a job for the last 17 years. Someone had very sweetly said to me, well, you know, Michelle, maybe you need to do something different. You know, you, you'll easily get another job. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> I don't think you understand the mind of an entrepreneur. It kind of makes my heart roast <gasps> and we get sweaty palms. Yeah. And you know what? Every time I say that part of the story, if I say it to someone in corporate world, they're like, oh. And if I say it to someone that's self-employed, owner, manager, entrepreneur, they just, they know. They see the fear and I see the fear back in totally. their eyes. It's amazing. Totally. Like, we don't work. We don't have jobs. <laughs> Well, we do work, but we don't have Yes, true, true. We, yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I gave myself permission to play with this thought, what would I do again? I thought, I'd, well, easy. I'd do another purpose-led business. I'm one of the poster kids for that. Yeah. Second rule of business, do something. If, if, if it's business, if it's work, do something you love, do something you're passionate about. Well, I had anxiety and depression, so I wasn't passionate about anything. So I'd hit a wall and I'd wail to Emmy, my husband. I'm not passionate about anything apart from sitting in my beautiful PJs that you bought me for Christmas. I had these really nice Liberty pyjamas that I used to kind of kid myself that was me getting dressed for the day. (laughs) At least if someone knocks at the door, I look quite presentable or beautiful. Um, And then, and this is kind of where I sort of reached the crossroads of where brilliance meets madness because... One day I suddenly realised that the pyjamas that literally kind of represented everything that was holding me back could become my inspiration. And I wondered to myself whether there were other people who also saw the kind of the two different um, kinds kinds of symbolism that the PJ day can take. There's the days that we stay in our pyjamas, hopefully quite regularly. It's a Sunday, we read the papers, we eat good food, we're together, we watch a box set. We're resting, recuperating from the week. These are good PJ days. We should have more of them. But for some of us, there are those days where you can't get out your pyjamas, you can't get out the front door. Maybe you can't even get out from underneath your duvet cover. And this is mental health. This is stress, anxiety, depression, and and all of the other things that come out of that, that mental health topic. And I wondered, could pyjamas become our Trojan horse? It does sound mad, this. doesn't it? Well, they're either, they could, are either they're either a way of trapping you, yeah, or or, or a way of lifting you. Yeah, I, I they're see. like you. My friend Lindsay always says she gets home from work and she 
gets out of her work clothes and put, puts her PJs on and she feels like her real, authentic self when she's got her pyjamas on. That's interesting. And I love the honesty that comes with that. And so I thought, well, could you use pyjamas designed by brilliant, beautiful artists um, in the most kind, caring, sustainable way because mental health is a people and planet issue all the way through the supply mm. chain. And could we use the product, the labelling, the packaging, what's inside the packaging, the platform from which we sell them, the, the social media, the people, the people who are making them, the people that are buying them. Can we all do our bit to share stories around mental health? And the ultimate mission, I think this is my, my next mission in life, is how do we help make mental health an everyday conversation? Because like, like we said, when you start talking about it with someone, it's not awkward, it's not that difficult if, you, if you're both honest, if you both open up. And because since then I've, I've, I've spoken publicly, I've written publicly, but I've also had coffees and coffees and coffees and coffees and coppers, so much so that I'm now having to go on to decaf, that I've had so many conversations with people and when I share my story... They usually share a story back, and it's, I find it wonderful, amazing, sad, shocking, hopeful, humbling. humbling. Yeah. It's about permission. I too am very open about the trouble you are, I've yeah. had, and open generally. And you kind of then do become a magnet for this. And I'm not knocking that; it's great because you then yeah. give the permission to people to open up. Absolutely. And once that happens, then an honesty and a relief arrives that allows people to to have that, I'm going to call it a King Lear moment. That you described it as the bit between genius and madness. Yeah. And, and you've got to kind of get to the bottom of everything. You've got to kind of get to the base before you can come yeah. back up. And yes. I love King Lear because both Lear and poor Tom went to the moors to become nothing in order for them to become everything mm. and, and I kind of like the mm. honesty in Shakespeare full stop but certainly in that play and I see it everywhere mm. you've got to get to the bottom before you can come back up again but do you and should you be getting arriving at the bottom so violently nah. that's that certainly as I move forward there's a, you know, I, I start. I had my first session of clinical psychology last night, and you know what? What I was saying, what I hoped to get out of it is to understand myself a bit better, to really stop the the highs and lows. Yeah. And I think even when I'm not kind of in a burnout or experiencing that violent low or high, actually, if if I look at myself as an entrepreneur, as a leader, as a just as, as a, me, the human being, Michelle, in the world, I am built in a way that I can lead everyone to the top of the mountain and let's go. And, and yeah. But the thing is, I get to the top of the mountain, I'm looking for a higher bit. The next and I, mountain. And yeah. I'm carrying on, carrying on, and not maybe stopping to take in the view and making sure that we all rest, including myself. So and so how do you create yeah. those moments of evolution in yourself and rebirth and entering, you know, finishing one cycle into another without the violence. I agree, without the significant of burnout. Drop. Yeah. So it speaks of a lots of things here. There's there's a little bit of of, of like self worth. There's a lot mm. of self worth, and it's always been 
the one that, that, that leads and pioneers. There's a little bit of, a little bit of ego, which is not always a bad thing. It's, in fact, it's often a very, very good thing. And there's a little bit of a, like anti-boredom. I need mm-hmm. to go and do the next thing. But but what's missing is and and the word I'm not re- I don't like using the word moderate really. But but what's missing is kind of being able to moderate yourself, mm-hmm. being able to say actually I, I will be better there if I do less here. Mm-hmm. And I guess yeah. that's and there's a lot of addiction in this actually as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I, I think how I dealt with this is to know myself a bit better. And I still get me wrong all the fucking time. We're all works in progress, of aren't we, Of course. And that's beautiful. That is beautiful, yeah. But it's, a, it's about knowing when I'm just beginning to wobble. Yeah. And when you're riding a bike and you're wobbling or you're towing yeah. a trailer and you're wobbling, sometimes you've got to slow down. Yeah. Sometimes you've got to speed up as well. Yeah. And I, I, I definitely agree with that. And I... I know that I've become much more aware of that. And so, you know, I will, you know, if I, if I can, if I feel I've had those quite intense, busy, high days, then I will, you know, I don't, I know I'm almost, yeah, I'm prepared to cancel everything in my diary. To look after you. Yeah. It's very Buddhist, very strong. How do people find out about your PJs? Where, where, where do they find out more about you? Well, they, they too, like me, are a work in progress. Um, so we're, we're still at the early days, but we're hoping to do a crowdfund in January, February. Yeah. And you can go to uh, pjoys.co.uk. Pjoys, I love it. P-joys. Do you know what I love it most? Tell my favourite thing in the world is having a wee outside. <laughs> no, that's second, my second favourite thing in the world. I won't no, go to the first one. No, no. P-Joys. P-Joys, yeah. Oh. We're going be, gonna to be like the hoover of the pyjama world. Michelle, I love it. You're amazing. What you've done with Liberty is astonishing. I'm watching you from afar and occasionally near over the last year has made me realise what an astonishing leader you are. And they are, they're rare, they're few and far between. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was lovely. So hopefully that was enjoyable. Um, I learned loads actually. And I think it's always really good to kind of question motivations behind why people change and why things change. And and we're very odd in this contrast in the UK I'm talking about, where you change what you do midway through your life. And of course that's then called a midlife crisis. Uh, And actually it's, maybe just changing what you do Uh, and that's okay it's okay to not carry on doing the same thing that you've always done because you've got 40 50 years in in work now that's extraordinary maybe even 60 years in work now that's an extraordinary amount of time um to be doing one thing so so certainly go in plural as people say but 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 definitely you know, changing what you do to fit in with what you believe at any one point, I think is really, really important. Um, and yeah, hopefully you got a lot from that. We've got um, a couple more exciting ones coming. Um, we've probably got about 12 lined up now, but if there's anybody that you know that's doing astonishing stuff, um, get in touch. Thanks.